As was mentioned already this evening, what a tremendous privilege and an opportunity that we have had in order to not only this day to gather this morning, if health and other things permitted, but also, of course, to be able to assemble this evening yet in the name of our Heavenly Father yet again. As I look over the audience, we're always so thankful for our membership and for the visitors that come our way. It is the case that as we continue our series of lessons dealing really through the entirety of the Bible, we come tonight to another lesson drawn from the Old Testament major prophet of Ezekiel. In particular, this past week, as we have been reading through at least the middle sections of that book, we have the opportunity to consider tonight a lesson drawn from chapter 36 of the book of Ezekiel. I've entitled it, For Mine Holy Name. These initial comments might well set us on our course or our track as we proceed to discuss some of the features taken from the midst of that chapter. As you can well tell, all of us would be so quick to defend the thought of how significant a name is. We often spend months, maybe even longer, to choose the right name for our newborn baby boy or baby girl. Not only that, we often select very carefully the names of the other things we have opportunity to name. We might even pause to say that in the industrial world or the marketing world, often a great amount of effort and research is done to name a product so that it will be more likely to be successful and productive. Of course, you and I know that an organization also is such that its name is very carefully selected. All of those things I've tried to highlight with the idea of the bottom statement on that slide. All of us would be so quick to say then the name of deity, the name of God, or that which God Himself has named is of extraordinary and paramount significance. No wonder in light of that name, tonight we're going to use the first part of our lesson as God told Ezekiel to reflect a bit on the name of God. And a statistic might well direct our thoughts very interestingly. Were you aware that 4,444 times in the King James Version of the Bible, the word God appears? By the time you add in the various pronoun references, it's easy to see that, yay, thousands and thousands of times in the Bible, God's name directly appears. There are times as you and I appreciate that term and that word. We know that there are various Hebrew words that may be behind it, like Yahweh, like Jehovah. And yet, as the translators rendered it, you and I noticed that well over 4,400 times the word God in the form as you and I see it appears. That's astounding, isn't it? To think of that many occurrences. Is there any doubt then that the God of heaven is the author of the book? And is there any doubt that it lifts high the banner of His greatness and the character of all that He stands for? The very first occurrence is in the opening verse of the opening book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And immediately we have the impetus reflecting on the beginning of time and space and force and all that goes with it. There's a great deal of physics in the opening verse of the Word of God. The last occurrence is near the end of the last chapter in Revelation 22, verse number 19, when on that occasion we again remember as the entirety of Scripture is closed and wrapped up, that there's again a reference to God. With that many occurrences, no wonder in the midst of many of the books of the Bible, and so it is with Ezekiel, we find a reference to his name and a reminder of how significant, how important, 
and how reverently that name is to be used. Consider these thoughts with me briefly. God's name is great. Now, quite frankly, that can't be said of my name, but God's name is. That name is so great that you notice in Jeremiah 10 verse 6, the inspired prophet on that occasion directly asserted that that name, the name of God, it's terrible and it's great, it's mighty. Not only that, in Ezekiel 36, 23, right before the lesson text this evening, we find another reference to the greatness of the name of God. Among other things, we can begin to see that in the Old Testament era, some of the Hebrews had developed a habit of failing to appreciate the name of God for the power and majesty that really it has within it. Sounds a bit like some of the issues with which the world faces today, doesn't it? But let's go further to this thought. That name of God being as great as it is, is expressly identified in Psalm 99 as being worthy of praise. Many of the songs we sing in our book, we lift high and exalt and magnify the name of God, and such is entirely within the bounds of the authority of Scripture. That authority maybe leads us to appreciate this thought. In Ezekiel 36, 21, there's a passage to which I would turn your attention since it is in this same chapter. It says, But I had pity for mine holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. God there, speaking to Ezekiel, identifies the fact His name, God's name, is a holy name. It is not then a name to be treated with flippancy, nor a name to be looked over and even overlooked. The holiness attached to that name leads us to notice that it is thus a name for which there is great cause to glorify I would just call to your attention 1 Chronicles 16.10 as well as Psalm 33 in Isaiah 57. All of them expressly assert that God's name is holy and it's worthy of praise and glorification. There are times when I suppose there's a tendency, isn't there, for a person to want his or her name lifted higher than perhaps what's appropriate, but such can never be levied against God, for His name is worthy of all the adoration and all the glory and all the consideration to which one could attach it. It is true in light of all those things. We remind ourselves of what God did tell the ancient people of Israel. In Exodus chapter 20, the third of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number three. The first commandment and the second one will remember you and I appreciate that they taught so directly the fact there is no God other than Him. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second one, they were never ever to make any graven image of anything that was an object of worship. After those two commandments identifying the grandeur, the uniqueness and the singular nature of the God of heaven, commandment three turned its attention to His name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Pause with me for a moment to consider again. Here were people who, in very many ways, were in a position to appreciate what God had done. They had witnessed a parting of the Red Sea by His power. They had witnessed plagues that were brought on the Egyptians by His power. By that time, they had witnessed already water from a rock. And yet God still reminded them 
Never, ever take my name in vain. For if you do, I will not hold you guiltless. In other words, you'll be declared as guilty of such an infraction. It is with that thought in mind, we notice some additional statements reminding them and us about the sanctity of that name. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 12, explicitly this command is found, Thou shalt not profane the name of the Lord thy God. The children of Israel were never to profane that name. You'll also notice in Ezekiel 36, 23, a very sad reflection because God says they had profaned it. The very thing that God commanded them not to do in Leviticus 19 is the very thing they had done in Ezekiel 36. We've often highlighted that the children of Israel had their failures and one of them was properly respecting and reverencing the name of God. In addition to that, you might notice God's name is not to be polluted. You and I often look so dimly upon pollution. Our environmental friends tell us what a great dearth it brings to the environment, pollution in various ways it occurs, and yet God's name is not to be polluted either. I've asked you to appreciate Ezekiel 20 verse 39. That occurs a little earlier in this book of Ezekiel, but the language is so strong. Listen as I bring that reading before us. Verse 39 of Ezekiel chapter 20. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Go ye, serve ye every one his idols, and hereafter also, if ye will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. God had become apparently sufficiently frustrated. He was tired of the children of Israel trying to hold to multiple gods at once. If I am God, then serve me legitimately, faithfully, and with commitment. But if not, at least stop polluting my name. The pollution attached to the name of God, as we see it in the book of Ezekiel, brings us, of course, to observe. There were even serious consequences levied against those who did disobey this. In Leviticus 24, verse 16, we notice that the one who blasphemed the name of God, we find that the penalty exacted upon him by the God of heaven himself, death. Someone who blasphemed God's name was to be put to death. We remember that that penalty was reserved for those that committed murder and those that committed various other sins such as adultery and fornication. But we notice here, for taking God's name in such a fashion that it was declared blasphemy, death was the penalty. You'll also notice one final observation. As you and I turn the page into the New Testament, and we reflect even in our day upon this premise as well as additional ones like it, you and I know that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself had much to say about the care with which our words must be selected and chosen. In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, Every word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Pausing long enough there to highlight every word that men shall speak. The words that you and I say on a daily basis. Those who take the time to estimate and count tell us that at least most of the time, the average person speaks several thousand words a day. Are you and I choosing them carefully? And are, is there ever a consideration in which we fail 
to lift high God's holy name. There are those, of course, who have no real thought about this. They use God's name inappropriately. They use it irreverently. They use it flippantly. They use it blasphemously at times. Oh, if only they could appreciate the sanctity, the holiness, and the solemnity of the name of God. You'll notice that one final thought in that Matthew 12, verse 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. It is a heavy consideration in terms of our language, isn't it? And yet, as we've so far considered, these were some of the very things in principle that the Israelites had failed. They were polluting God's name. They were profaning His name. And several times in the book of Ezekiel, He charged them with that. As we turn the slide to the next one, let us use this as an opportunity to give some thought to how the book of Ezekiel is not only laid out, but what is the placement of these passages we now read in chapter 36. First of all, the book of Ezekiel really lays out rather simply, at least compared to other books like Jeremiah. The book of Ezekiel, you'll notice, begins like this. The first 35 chapters of this book, by and large, set before us the grandeur of God's nature as judge. In fact, the first 24 chapters of this book, God levies judgment on Jerusalem. The people of God were the ones who themselves either were or were going to captivity, and it was because of their iniquity, because of their sin. And that was the judgment of God on the choices that they had made. You'll notice, though, beyond that in that same set of chapters, God turns His attention to the nations beginning in verse chapter 26. There, nations like the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the, the nation known as Tyre and Sidon, all of them too were going to be judged because of their failures in respect to that which was the will of God. As we come to all those matters, in chapter 33, God turns His attention again to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman. You proclaim faithfully my message to these people, my people who are in captivity. In chapter 34, the message to the shepherds, they had failed. The leaders of Israel had failed in properly guiding and leading the people in the way they were to have gone. It is in that context we now find chapter 36. I've asked you to consider that beginning in chapter 36 and continuing until the end of the book, chapter 48, we have a marvelous exposition that comes on the heels of God's judgment. First 35 chapters, judgment from God because of sin. Chapters 36 to 48, the restoration of Israel. God was going to allow some of the captives to return. They were going to be blessed to again go back to their land to reestablish their worship, to reestablish the propriety of their service to God. So the last 13 chapters of the book is a positive thing, a time of restoration a time of newness, a time of service to God. It is into that discussion we find chapter 36. As you look at some of the features of that chapter, I would ask that you to notice some of the comments that I would draw to our attention about the middle of that slide. What is it that prompted God to hold out hope for this people? Think of it like this with me. They had disobeyed Him. Through hundreds of years, they had failed to keep His commandments. Why didn't God give up on them? 
Why didn't God, in fact, completely forego any further opportunities for this band of people? It is this very chapter that gives us one answer to that question. Look at verse 22 of Ezekiel 36, please, with me. Verse 22 reads as follows, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. This restoration, this opportunity to extend grace and mercy to you in terms of returning to Jerusalem, I'm not doing that just because you deserve it. I'm not doing that simply because you're such wonderful people. The verse goes on to read like this. I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake. There's something about the integrity, the character, and the nature of the name of God that merited an opportunity for this people. After all, they would be the, would be the ones through whom the Christ child would ultimately enter the world. The greatest example of God's mercy and love for the human family for my namesake, God says, is why I'm allowing you to return. That's why I'm allowing you to again go back to this place of Jerusalem. Notice again in that verse, not for your sakes, but for mine holy name. Isn't it ironic? That's the very same name, though, that that verse says they had profaned. Doesn't that speak volumes about just how grand the name of God is? No wonder as you look at some of the bottom statements on that slide. It's a bit on the sickening side then today, isn't it? When you and I think of the flippancy with which the name of God is often used. How often in a typical week's time do you hear someone make the exclamation, Oh my, and you can complete the statement. Someone in surprise, someone who is somewhat dejected, someone who is a bit disappointed. It seems that's the first phrase that's ever utilized. And yet God said, don't ever take my name in vain. We even find that premise and that principle set forth before us in the New Testament, don't we? How often was that name of God lifted with such a great character? Jesus Himself as he made reference to God, how did he begin that prayer that you and I often call the model prayer? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That word hallow means to set apart with great sanctity. It means to consecrate. It would be entirely appropriate then for you and for me as we think about that name of God to ever make certain that we use it with care, to use it with propriety, Hallowed be thy name. Beyond all of that, you'll notice that the children of Israel, as they had come to use God's name in derision, as they had come to use it, polluting it, to you and me that seems almost unfathomable, doesn't it? This people who had his oracles, Romans 3 verse 2, this people who were in a position to appreciate the great leadership of men like Moses and Joshua and the other prophets that were to come later, and yet they profaned and polluted His name. You and I as Christians, of course, have a great obligation and a great responsibility to properly consider that name and to utilize it in a way that would be right. No wonder I would ask you to observe that there was a need for some change. Very bottom observation on that slide. 
there was a need for some change. Remember, this people to this point had been in a position of judgment. But God was holding out for them and to them a beautiful description of a future that one day would be much brighter. That's a premise that is often very needful for you and for me. God's tomorrow is always brighter than our today. With the hope of God and with the power of His Word and the opportunity to think about the grace that He has within it, isn't that the message that was given to those in the, in the Revelation? Notice with me again then some of the change that was to take place. This is a rather beautiful text in many ways. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. Then, please note the adverb. This is a description about a set of events that was going to take place when the fullness of that blessing was ultimately received. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. And ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. What a change was under description. A group of people who had profaned His name, polluted His name, acted in other rather despicable ways religiously, and now He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit, and you will be sprinkled with clean water, and you will be clean. That kind of change doesn't happen accidentally, does it? And that kind of metamorphosis, if you will, doesn't just occur by accident. As you and I develop from the bottom statement of that slide on to the next one, you'll notice that what's under description seemingly points directly to the beauties that you and I now know as the recipients of the blessings beneath the gospel. Let's see if we can't consider that more thoroughly and a bit more fully with some of the comments on this slide. As you'll notice at the top, I've asked you to give some thought then to the occurrence of the name since that was a part of the context that we just have read about in Ezekiel 36. What about the name that you and I read of in the pages of the New Testament? In terms of power, perhaps to our mind comes that text in Acts 3 verse 16. There, you may remember, there was a man who himself in that porch known as Solomon's he himself was one who was lame, and yet Peter had the privilege and, yea, the power from the God of heaven to heal that man. And you and I might recall the language that Peter used. Peter was quick to say, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There's a reference to the name. And later in verse 16 of that same chapter, we observe there that Peter was quick to defend that which he had done. It is not my power that healed him, but it's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, what does that then say about the reference to the church of Christ? You and I are part of an organization, the body of Christ, and we with pride use the reference, the church of Christ. We see it on the pamphlets that we have there at the back of the, the auditorium. We see it, of course, on the building, on the sign outside. We wear that name. 
In fact, we get somewhat excited about it, don't we? The churches of Christ salute you, Romans 16, verse 16. As Paul then addressed the congregations of the first century era, he lifted high the thought and the character of that name. Today, what about you and what about me? As we give some thought and excitement to that name, let us consider it even more thoroughly. On that occasion when you and I have the privilege of witnessing a baptism, or maybe as you recall the day you yourself were baptized, preachers are very careful, gospel preachers I suppose, to ensure that that particular statement employed by the Master himself in Matthew 28, 19 is carefully recited. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. But there again is a reference to we're baptized not in an arbitrary name, not in an otherwise description, but in the name of the God of heaven, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. As you give thought to the character of that name, later we appreciate then that in Acts 2.38, on that first Pentecost day, Peter had the confidence and yea, the assurance to say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. One more time, a reference to the name. That little word, N-A-M-E, is so very telling, isn't it? And as you and I have seen already, so many verses and so many references remind us that it is not an insignificant matter. May we also appreciate then that we're admonished, yea, even commanded, that whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him, Colossians 3.17. Yet another reference to the ongoing activities of the church, be it its worship or the other characteristics of its labors. As often as all of these matters tell us, we notice there was a problem in Ezekiel's day. They had profaned and they had polluted the name of God. And yet so many things in, in the banner of the New Testament are to be done by His name, in His name, in the authority of His name. It may well be in light of all those things. What was it Paul told the Thessalonians? You may notice there was a commandment in 2 Thessalonians 1 that they were to glorify God in the name of Christ. That was a commandment. It sounds a bit like that closing verse to Ephesians chapter 3, doesn't it? There you and I are so easily taught that the nature of our relationship to the Father, that power that comes with that name and the relationship that we have through the gospel. At this point, we again come to realize some of these final remarks. I would use this as an opportunity to ask you to think again about these issues raised in Ezekiel 36. I've had opportunity over the years at one time or another to hear others who've made their commentator statements about them. And many times what is taken from these is not correct in light of other biblical passages. The idea is so sweet, isn't it? Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. As you and I think about what that might suggest, it seems rather easy from the perspective of the New Testament, doesn't it? Sprinkle clean water upon you. Interesting that almost verbatim phrase occurs in Hebrews 10.22. 
and something like it also in Titus 3 verse 5, reminding us of our life in Christ and the regeneration we enjoy. We've been sprinkled with clean water. We are the ones today who then are washed clean. As God gave these words to Ezekiel centuries and centuries ago, they really focus a strong lens upon the blessings of the gospel era. You and I are the prime recipients. We are the ones who've been washed clean. Didn't Jesus Himself say in John 15 verse 3, Now ye are clean through the words which I have spoken. What a blessing it is to be washed clean from sin. What a blessing it is to not have to rely upon any attempt of the blood of bulls and goats, for they could never take away sin in the first place. Hebrews 10 verses 1 and 4. It is with all that in mind. What did He mean when He made reference to the new heart? Please note again verse 26. A new heart also will I give you. What kind of open heart surgery is this? God in the days of Ezekiel highlighting a new heart that He was going to give them? That Bible heart, of course, is the seed of one's thinking, the seed of one's emotion, that which is the matter of intelligence. God says, I'll give you a new heart. It won't be predicated on the failures of the old law of Moses, and it won't have the shortcomings and the weaknesses of it either. Full forgiveness will be available. Full and complete association with God through His Son. That is the new heart. And today, of course, you and I are still, 2,000 years later, benefit from the marvelous premise of the new heart God was going to give. That text went on to say in Ezekiel 36, 26, And a new spirit will I put within you. What did he mean by the new spirit? Maybe these thoughts are those which easily come to mind. When you and I come into the New Testament, we see that there is a heightened understanding of the Holy Spirit. Now frankly, although the Holy Spirit had His work in the Old Testament, that work was much more concealed it wasn't seen in its fullness, and it was not seen in the grandeur of the revelation of that which was of God. But in full fruition, that came in the New Testament. Primarily with the completion of the sacred text, we find the Holy Spirit is the principal actor in the book of Acts. Look at verses like Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That Spirit to which then Paul referred and those who walk after it, that was being led by the very words and the dictates of the Holy Spirit. Sounds a lot like the new heart, doesn't it? And the new Spirit described in Ezekiel chapter 36. He goes on to say in Ephesians 1.13 that the Holy Spirit is given to all of us as Christians as a guarantee of God's promise and His faithfulness toward that which He has promised to you and to me. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the opportunity to appreciate the leadership and the power of that Word, it is with all that said, perhaps this statement is a fair one. As you read even further in Ezekiel 36, that we readily find there were some things that those people were going to enjoy in that day. A physical return to Jerusalem, the opportunity to enjoy fruitful seasons, and the opportunity to see in all of that the hand of God blessing them again with the ability to return to Jerusalem. 
However, as you and I have just seen, there seems to be a strong part of this that really streams down the element of time and really blesses you and me today. The new spirit, the new heart, being washed clean when sprinkled with water. We found too many references in the New Testament that help us see that was pointing to me and to you. Maybe one final thought. All of this section in Ezekiel, and we highlighted already that it does look toward the greatness of God's blessing upon them returning to Jerusalem in the near term. Think about the idea of a resurrection. This people were as good as dead in Babylonian captivity. They were far removed from the temple, far removed from that land of promise that they had known for a while. They now were slaves and captives in a land underneath these very difficult and cruel and harsh overlords. They were as good as dead. But God says, I'm going to bring you back. The first part of Ezekiel 37 tells us about the valley of dry bones. Those bones that were dry and its hope was lost. And God says, Ezekiel, look again and what do you see? The bones had come together. Sinew was attached to it, and that which formerly was dead was now alive. And a great army stood upon its feet, and that army was, of course, the army of God. Is it any wonder in the midst of this resurrection, the new spirit, I should say the new heart, and that spirit that was given is still a great blessing for you and me today? Are you following the leading then of the Holy Spirit? Are you allowing the Spirit through the Word He's given to lead you into those paths of sweetness and goodness and knowledge from God? It is the Spirit again in Romans 8.1 that says we ought not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Are you walking after the Spirit? Have you to this point in life? It might be tonight that there's someone in the audience who at this moment is not following the direction of the Spirit. Maybe you're following the direction of yourself your own choices, whatever they may be. But you'll notice on this last slide, we've been reminded about God's name. It is a great name. It is a holy name. It is the grand name and the greatest of all. Would you not bow in submission to it? Holy and reverent is His name, to quote Psalm 111, verse number 9. The reverence to be attached to His name, may we never use the name lightly. May we never use it blasphemously, because every idle word we shall have to give account of it. That new name that we've described previously in other lessons, the name Christian, are you able to wear that tonight with pride and with an honor attached to what that name stands for? There's coming a day when you might imagine it like this. On that day of judgment, God's going to say, Who are the Christians, if you will, stand on my right hand side? Numbered with the sheep. All that cannot claim that are going to be put on the left with the goats. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And we all remember the fate of each one of those groups. What about you tonight? Is that name characteristic of you in faithfulness? The plan of salvation? You must believe in the name of Jesus. Believe that He is exactly who He said that He was. Repent then of your sins and confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you've attended to that but haven't been faithful to that name, why not come back to your first love tonight? Israel was called to come back to that name. God calls you to come back to it too. That name will be a name that will support you 
It'll aid you to endure. It'll be there for you through all the things that life may hurl your way. Tonight, if you need to beg, if you need to come to God to beseech forgiveness and invite us to pray for you, we'd be happy to do it. A song of encouragement's been chosen. This is an opportune time, and if you feel that this is the time that you would like to respond in a public way, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?